All right, so uh, today we are starting a brand new series called The Word Made Flesh. And we're gonna be talking about Jesus over the next four weeks. And I wanna give you a challenge at the end of the message, something I need you to partner with me about. So I wanna start with something, a principle or an idea that uh, John is teaching to both Greeks and Jews uh, in these first five verses of the book of John. In ancient Greek theology or philosophy, there was an idea, and it was the underlying power and principle that governs the entire universe, and it was called the Lagos. And the Lagos was, if you, if you know anything about Greek culture or background, you know that the Greeks were polytheistic. They served numerous gods. And, uh, and yet at the same time, one of their gods never really explained how everything unfolds in the universe. And so they came up with this idea of the Lagos that there was a unifying power underneath the structure of the universe itself that basically organizes the chief idea, the best practice, whatever you want to call it, it was the Lagos. And it was something that was central to Greek thought. John is about to come in and redefine the Lagos for them in a way that we're going to look in just a little while that Paul does the same thing in Athens. Both of these places that, that we're talking about right here, intellectual centers of thought. So let's read the first five verses, and we're going to jump in to talk about the nature of Jesus, which today we're looking at the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is God, not just a regular teacher, not a philosopher, not a moralist, not a a magician, but he is actually and was and is God in the flesh. All right, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, well, let's jump in to verse one, and let's talk about these things. So the first thing I want you to see is these words, the beginning, right there. Uh, These words right here are similar, if you've ever read the Bible, especially in Genesis chapter one, verse one, right? As the Bible opens, it, be, it opens with the idea that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the story that Moses writes in Genesis chapter one, and then also again in chapter two, is the story of the creation of the universe, right? It is the story of how God basically created the world which we live in and the heavens and everything around us. But This, in the beginning, even though it's the same words as Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, in the beginning was the word. This is actually not the beginning of creation. This is the beginning before there was a beginning. This is the beginning of all beginnings. And so this is actually talking about ancient eternity. And I'll tell you why even that phrase is not really a good phrase to use to describe this. But in the beginning was the word. Now, this word right here, word, word, actually in the original Greek is the word logos. And So what John is doing is he's talking to a bunch of Greeks and a bunch of Jews who would have their whole life understood that there is one underlying power, chief principle that governs the universe. Even though we have multiple gods in the Greek system, there is one chief principle, one chief idea that governs and rules and makes the universe and powers the world, right? And that is the logos. So what John does is he comes in here and he goes, listen, this logos, this impersonal force that you've talked about for generation after generation after generation, I'm now going to personify that, and I'm going to tell you what that is, and that is Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, the logos, and the word logos, Jesus, was with God the Father, and the word was 
God. And so what we see at the very beginning of this is John is making a super clever attempt to be able to share the gospel and talk about the nature of Jesus and describe Jesus to people who worshiped different gods. But the one thing I want you to see that he does, and we're gonna see it in just a minute as Paul does the same thing in Athens. But one of the things that he does is something so different than the way that the church and that Christians tend to talk about Jesus today. When you find somebody who has a different belief system, a lot of times what we see on social media is Christians coming together and talking about how their gods are bad and how this is wrong and that's wrong. But Paul doesn't do that and neither does John here. He doesn't come in and start casting down their gods. What he does say is, hey, there is a God behind this idea that you're talking about, this power that powers the entire universe, and his name is Jesus. And the word Jesus, this logos, was with God the Father, and the, uh, and the word was God. And so he's basically saying, in essence, this thing that you have been like wondering about, and this thing that explains the universe to you, that's Jesus. And then he goes on here, and, and I want to look at Acts chapter 17 right now, and I want to show you what Paul does. He does something very similar to what John does. He connects ideas that are in their faith with the true God and then allows them to see it. What they're doing basically is this, is they're showing the more beautiful story. And I have a story about this myself that I'll tell you in just a minute. But let's take a look at this Acts passage first. This is Paul. And what he's done is he showed up on the shores of Athens. And Athens is primarily, if you will, at this time, one of the intellectual centers of Grecian thought. So there is a place called the Areopagus. And it's like a little Colosseum where people would come together and they would explore ideas. And so Paul comes and he says, this is a perfect place for me to be able to talk about who Jesus is. That Jesus is just not some ordinary random guy, that he's actually something so much bigger than what they thought, right? So he starts right here in verse 22. So Paul's at the Areopagus. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. And he said, people of Athens, you can just see him, right? You can see he's got his toga on and he's out there. People of Athens, right? I see that in every way you are very religious. The first thing I want you to see that he does right here is he doesn't go in and go, hey, you know the fact that you serve Zeus? That's just a made up statue. Or you know the fact that you follow Apollo or you worship Aphrodite? These are just fake gods. He doesn't do that to them. Why? Well, because just like today, when we come in kicking down people's belief systems, they don't turn to our faith. What he's doing right here is he's going to show them there is something you are very religious, you want to be, and you know what? There are some people in the room like that right now. You're not necessarily a Christian. You wouldn't describe yourself as super religious, but you have a spiritual curiosity. And he's talking to the spiritually curious in Athens. And this is what he says. For as I walked around Athens and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. See, because they were polytheistic and they believed in multiple different gods, uh, and because they were a little bit superstitious, they didn't want to leave out one of these gods and then incur the wrath of that god if he got mad because they worshiped Zeus and Aphrodite, but they didn't mention him or they didn't mention this other god, this her. So what they do is they put a catch-all god out there. So there is uh, an altar that's to the unknown god. We don't know what your name is, but we're willing to say that you're a god and we want to honor you and respect you. And what Paul does is he goes in and he says, hey, I know who this unknown God is. I'm gonna tell you his name. His name is Jesus. And then he begins to unfold the more beautiful story of what it would be like to follow Jesus and not Zeus. Because in the ancient world, these Greek gods that they served were very petty. They were like human beings on steroids. They were like, they were like, 
they were like, they were like um, Hercules. They were part God and part man. And because of that, they were cruel and they were petty and they would do wicked things to people all the time. And so when Paul's painting the more beautiful story of the gospel, he's showing them that there is a father that looks like Zeus that is better than Apollo, that is more beautiful than Aphrodite, and that ultimately will not do something harmful to you, but loves you like a good father would. And he opens up the hearts of those who are in Athens and people become transformed. He says, so that you're not ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm gonna tell you the name of your unknown God. It's beautiful that both John and Paul do the same thing. And that is that they step into, um, they step into culture, not kicking down culture, but saying, let's start from common ground. You have an unknown God, I know who he is. You have seen that the Lagos is the power behind all of eternity. Let me tell you who actually empowers that. His name is Jesus. So years ago, 15 years ago, approximately, uh, Grace Church did a uh, project in uh, Rwanda. And uh, we, were, we provided clean drinking water for thousands of people uh, around Rwanda. It was an amazing, we still have relationships with some of those guys over there. It was an amazing time. Well, we stayed in a hotel called the Mill de Cleanest Hotel. And the Mill de Cleanest Hotel is where they filmed the Hotel Rwanda. That's, it's Hotel Rwanda, if you saw the movie. And so every night we would have dinner downstairs and it was just me and like five other guys. I think one of those guys I just saw in the room right now. Um, but, but, uh, but, but we would have this dinner and there was this one girl that was sitting at a table away from us. And I said, let's invite her over to the table. And I think she worked for the United Nations. She was writing a report for them about a developing country issue. And so we had her over and we started talking to her and, uh, you know, she asked, what, what were we doing here? We told her about the water project. We said, we do this because we're Christians and we're pastors and they were elders. And, and uh, she said, well, that's cool. And then I said, hey, tell me what you think about your faith. Do you have any faith at all? And she was like, yeah. She said, I'm a Buddhist. And I was like, that's interesting. I said, that's, that's, that's cool. I said, that's, that's awesome. We talked a little bit about what interested her about Buddhism. Then we talked a little bit about like Islam. We talked a little bit about Judaism. We talked a little bit about Hinduism. And I was kind of going along with her and I was talking about the things that I saw in each one of them that were good. Now, here's what you need to, here's what you need to know because you need to hear this and nuance it. You need to understand this, okay? I believe that there is only one way to God. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you go, well, that's kind of closed-minded. Why one way? Not, not 10,000 ways. Well, because. Because God didn't give us 10,000 paths and say, hey, I want you to find the right one. He gave us one path and said, I'm gonna make it super clear for you. And I'm gonna give you the opportunity every single second of your life, every single minute of your life, every single hour of your life, days, weeks, months, all the years that you have on the planet to be able to say yes to Jesus and to the path. You have every opportunity to do that. So anyway, we have this conversation with this lady and uh, I, 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 but with what I just said, that I believe Jesus is the only way to God, you need to know that not everything in every other religion is false. Every one of the religions have a little bit of light there. In fact, Islam copies major portions of the Bible, right? Almost word for word, okay? So, so there are some certain things that, are, that we would agree upon. So what I did was I walked through each one of those and I said, here's what I like about Buddhism. I like the fact that there's mystery in God. It's not just something that you can understand fully. There's mystery to this that, that goes beyond comprehension. In Islam, I like the fact that God is big in Islam. They have a big concept of God and that somehow that means that we should behave differently in the world. I like that. I talked about Judaism and their focus on the law and how their focus on the law made sure that they had clarity about who God was. 
But then I turned it at the end of the conversation. I said, here's why I landed on Jesus though. I landed on Jesus because all of the mystery that I find in Buddhism and all of the bigness of God that you can see in Islam and all of the incredible mystery that you find in both Buddhism and Hinduism, all of that, all of that can be found in the person of Jesus. And he's not a partial truth, but he is the complete truth, the wrapped up truth of God in flesh. And I just remember when she first saw that, she said, oh, so you're saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these broken systems. And I'm like, that's exactly right. And you can just kind of see her sit there for a second. She said to all of us, she said, you know what? I could go to your church. And I took that as a compliment because she's, you know, she's not in any church. And I said, well, you know, you live in Washington, D.C., and I live in Orlando. And uh, you, uh, I pointed her to a church, you know? And uh, just kind of like kept up from a distance, you know, Facebook, that kind of thing. And uh, I believe she became a Christian about three years after that meeting. And listen, here's, here's, here's what's going on in a situation like that. I think when we come in and we just start kicking people down and talking about all of our differences, because we have differences, guys. And if you're one of those folks, if you're one of those folks that, you know, you're just like, you know, coexist kind of thing, where all religion is the same, it's only because you haven't studied it. And I'm not calling you dumb. I'm just calling you dumb. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 here, and here's, 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 here's the funny part of it. Here's the funny part of it. Like, it just takes like 10 minutes of really looking into each one of these faiths and realize that much of them are mutually exclusive. They, 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 can't, be both, they can't all be true. They, they contradict one another massively. But what we can do is we can be compassionate about those who have differences of opinions with us and we can point them to the truth of the gospel by showing them the more beautiful story. You see, that's what the gospel did for early Jews. This is why Jesus said, come unto me all who are weak and heavy laden, burdened with the law. Why? Because what he was saying was the law that just beats you down and shows you that you're never gonna be good enough. Never, Because that's the point of the law, right? The Old Testament law, the law shows us that we're not good enough. And the purpose of that is to show us that we need someone to rescue us and that someone is Jesus. But if you turn to the law for comfort, all it does is beat you up and tell you that you're not good enough. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, listen, I'm gonna give you faith. I'm gonna give you grace. I'm gonna give you mercy. When you fall down, the father will be there to pick you up. And so one of the, what we see here is that the church was amazing at talking to people about God and about Jesus in a world that didn't believe anything that they believed. Verse two says something about Jesus. It says, he, Jesus, was with God. Look at the preposition right here. He was with, with. To, to be with someone else means that that someone else is not you, right? Like when I'm with my son, I'm not my son. He was with God. So it tells us this, that Jesus and God are not the same person. Now, here's what Christianity has believed about the nature of who God is, that it is one God we serve. We're monotheistic. What does that mean? We believe in one God, not three gods. We don't believe the Holy Spirit's a God, that Jesus is a God and the Father is a God. We believe in one God that has three persons attached to him, right? And so you go, how do you figure that out? Well, welcome to the club. For 2000 years, theologians have been debating this, but I'm gonna give you the definitive answer this morning. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Not, not true. But, but here's, maybe this will help because it's a flawed illustration. All illustrations about the Trinity are flawed, right? It's a flawed illustration, but maybe it'll get you just one step closer. I am a son, I am a father, and I am a brother. And when I'm operating as a son and a father and a brother, I'm still one, I'm still one Mike. But at the end of the day, I have these three different roles that I have to participate in. And I have to act differently in these three different roles. 
But they're all different, but at the same time, it's me and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the same person. That's similar to the way God is. He is one person that operates in three different roles. And so I'm gonna show you these three people in the scriptures themselves. They only show up, all three of them, at one time in one scripture passage. And it's in the baptism of Jesus. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter three, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened up and he saw the spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove. Okay, can we just say all the tattoos and all the art that depicts the Holy Spirit as a bird is not what the text says, okay? He was descending like a dove. He was not a bird, all right? Okay, the Holy Spirit's like, I'll take on a bird form. No, but the Holy Spirit comes down and lights himself like he is. He rests on Jesus and a voice from heaven. There's Jesus in the water, Holy Spirit above him and a voice from heaven, sky cracks open. This is my son whom I love and with him, I am really happy. I am well-pleased. And so we see all three persons of the Trinity here. They are different, but they are one. They have different modes of operation. Jesus is being baptized. The Holy Spirit is descending and the Father's proclaiming. But they are three persons in this one God. In fact, in Acts 17, uh, actually, let's, let's go to uh, John 1, verses two and three. Let's look at them again. So Jesus was with God, the Father, in the beginning. In the beginning of what? Well, the beginning of all things. Like long before there was creation, there was God. He was with God, the Father, in the beginning, and through him, that's Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So one of the things that we see is that one of the chief roles of Jesus in the uh, redemption of the world is the creation of the world. Jesus is part and parcel of that creation. Like he creates the world. If you were to subtract, if we could subtract Jesus from the universe, there would be no universe. Why? because he's the one that creates it and everything that lives and continues has its existence in Jesus. We'll see that in a second. But he was with God the Father in the beginning. My kids uh, asked me some variation or shade of this question when they were really young. They said, who is God's father or mother? I think it's a great question for a kid, right? They asked also the question, um, how old is God? Well, this, or, or where does God live, right? And so we have a little bit more of the where does God live, but not really, okay? So, so to answer this question, you need to first realize, and this is hard to tell a kid, but you're smart, you can catch this. When we think about God and when God was created, we recognize he was never created. The church has always understood that he has always just been. And that's really hard for us because we live in a world, a universe where seconds, minutes, you know, hours, days, weeks, months, years, these are things we are experiencing even now. Watch this. That was a second. It just went past. It's never coming back again. It's continuing in time. That's where we're located in space and time. God is not. And so the way to understand that is God and time and the universe are an invention of God's. God created it all. It's an invention. He stands outside of it. It's different. And so there is never a time. We can't say how old is God because he was before time. Adults have asked me this before too. They say, hey, Pastor Mike, so where was I before I was born, right? Well, there's only a few, you know, religions that would say that you had any existence beforehand, but like Buddhism, for example, would say essentially that you are this one soul that is constantly being reincarnated throughout history and throughout time, right? We don't believe that. What we believe, like when you ask, like, where was I before I was born? The answer is you were nowhere. You weren't created yet. 
okay? There was no existence prior to your birth, prior to your you know, conception, right? And so with that said, listen, it's so, super important. Here's why. Because when we talk about Jesus, one of the things that makes him different than us is that he was here before his birth. See, Romans tells us that God knew you before the foundations of the world. Before he created anything, before whatever happened, happened and he created the universe, he knew you. He knew your name. He knew the time that you would be born. He knew I would be born, Mike, 1970, January 18th. He knew that I'd be born to Al and Mary Adkins. He knew that I'd be born in Tampa. He knew that I would be born, he knew that I would live in Orlando. He knew that I would marry Kelly. He knew that my children would be these children. He knows the number of hairs on your head, which is very disappointing. He knows, he knows all kinds of things about who we are. But you weren't alive before that. In that moment when he says, January 18th, 1973, 45 a.m. or whenever it was, Mike now becomes. Or at the moment of conception, Mike now becomes. But Jesus how could he be at the beginning? I mean, he was born 2,000 years ago. Makes no sense. Unless you understand that Jesus came from outside time, before time. In the ancient of ancients, before there was anything created, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect union, in perfect peace, in perfect joy with one another. And that's what they had. And then as God creates the world, he sends Jesus into the world. And he says, I want you to go and fix the major problem that everybody screwed up the world offer them a way out, a way home, and healing for their broken hearts. And that's what Jesus did. He came into the world to provide that for us, to open eternal life to us. So Jesus had a preexistence. And then when he died, he went to go sit at the right hand of the Father. He's still alive. He's still working in the world. But God created all things. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, Paul continuing to talk to the Athenians He says this, for in Christ, in him, we live, we move, and we have our being. That's why if you subtracted Jesus from the world or from the universe, there'd be no universe or no world. There'd be no you, there'd be no me, because everything that exists is contingent, dependent upon God, specifically Jesus. And then he quotes some of their own philosophers, their own poets. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So again, do you see what Paul's doing? He's taking stuff that they know to be true, and he's reinterpreting it in light of what the scriptures are and with God. He says, you know this thing, this, this, this poet who says that we are the God's offspring. He says, we believe that too. We just mean that you're created in the image of God. You are made to be like him. You have capacity that no one else has. You can think and you can feel and you can act in a way that no other animal in the entire universe can act. You are God-like in your faculties. John 1, 4 and 5 says this, this is so beautiful and helpful. John 1, 4 says this, in him, Jesus was the life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. Some, some of your translations say understood it. Some of your translations say overcome it. It can be translated both ways. So let's take a look at this. In Jesus was life. Now, most of the time in the Bible, when they use the word life, it's the Greek word bios. It's where it's the prefix of the word that we get biology from, right? Biology is, is living life, is living life, right? Here though, he doesn't use bios. He says in him, Jesus was not just bios. There is bios in Jesus, but there is Zoe. And Zoe is spiritual life. 
in Jesus was spiritual life. But what he means by that is not just that Jesus possesses and is spiritual life, but that he transfers that spiritual life to us. In him, Jesus was Zoe, spiritual life, and that spiritual life was the light of all mankind. So the thing that gives us illumination and clarity about God for all mankind, for some mankind, no, for all mankind, anybody who wants it, right, can have spiritual light. And so why is that important? Well, it's important because when we recognize that spiritual life comes from God, it makes sense of some of the scriptures. Like, for example, in the book of Romans, when it says, without Christ and apart from Christ, men and women are spiritually dead. They have bios, they walk around, they may be healthy, their hearts are working, their lungs are working, their brains are working, they're alive like you and me. But there are some in the room who have bios and no Zoe. And there are some in the room who have Zoe and bios. And the differences between them is not some are awesome and some are not, but some have received the gift of grace and God has given them spiritual life and some yet haven't. And so you're, you're alive, but when it comes to your connection with God, you have a spiritual death because you don't have that light that belongs to all mankind. You can, anytime you say, I choose to let you lead me. I choose to let you lead my life. Watch this. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome. This darkness is the darkness of the world in which we live, the broken, sinful world in which we live. This is why every single day you get up and something does not cooperate with you because the world's fractured, it's broken. And it says, once you have this Zoe inside of you, there's no kind of darkness that can steal that life from you. There's nothing that can come against you to take that life from you. Nothing can overcome the spiritual light that God has given to you, nothing at all, except you can kind of surrender it. Watch this, I want you to see this. Now, the Apostle Paul talks a little bit about this concept of light and darkness, of spiritual life. And this is where it gets super practical for us because this is helpful for how you and I live our spiritual lives, take our next steps toward Christ. I just said a second ago that the world has not overcome this spiritual life that's inside a follower of Jesus, but you can neglect it. You can neglect it. Ephesians chapter four, verse 17 starts like this. This is Paul writing. And he says, so I tell you this, and then he gets aggressive. I insist on it in the Lord. In other words, this is really important. I need you to pay attention to it, right? So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, right? So another way of saying this is live as the Gentiles do, do as the Gentiles do. So he starts with behavior and he says, something that the Gentiles were doing in the first century, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, right? So something the Gentiles were doing was displeasing to God and the way in which they were living was displeasing to God. But look at this, some people in the church were living just like them. And he says, you must no longer live or do as the Gentiles do. Why? Because they have futility in their thinking. The word futility means uselessness. Now dial in for a second. They have futility or uselessness in their thinking, and that leads to a darkened understanding of their life. And we know this. Cognitive behavioral psychologists have been telling us this for about 50 years, that the way that you and I think has a massive in, out, uh, has a massive impact on the outcome of our life, how we think. So if you're thinking worthless thoughts, it will darken your understanding of the world around you. When the, I said this at communion, the Bible teaches us, and this is why we confess our sins, that when we confess our sins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Father's not looking at you, trying to hammer you into the ground, trying to pin you down, no. He's saying, when you ask forgiveness, you will be forgiven. 
But if you walk around thinking, man, I blew it. I screwed up again. I'm never gonna be a good Christian. Why does God even love me? I do the same thing over and over and over again. I am worthless. I'm not effective in the kingdom. I'm not making a difference. Why would God love me? Why would anyone love me? Some of you have this conversation in your brains and it is a kind of useless thinking, mainly because there are things that we're doing sometimes that lead to the useless thinking that leads to the darkened understanding. The darkened understanding becomes clear when you take it from your perspective and put it on your kids. You got a child, five years old, and five-year-olds are just magnificent. They're filled with hope and love, and they think the whole world is wonderful. But when you walk around with useless thinking and darkened understandings, you can transfer some of this grossness that you have in your heart to them. And the way that you do it is you say dumb things like this. <laughs> when someone screws up, you go, well, you're not very smart. You're probably not gonna be able to do that. You shouldn't try that anymore. Or somebody's not super athletic. You know what? Athletics are the most important thing, and you don't have the most important thing. Or you look at your kid, and you're like, you're not that pretty. You should stop trying to just always look in the mirror. You're not that attractive. What does that do? Well, it takes this useless thinking and this darkened understanding that you possess, and it puts that inside the child as time goes on. And you know what will happen? Eventually, they won't hear your voice saying that they're not pretty. They'll just look at themselves in the mirror and go, I'm not pretty, no matter how pretty you really are. I've told my daughter every day of her life that she is beautiful and that she's wicked smart. Every single day, I said it this morning before I left. I've said it every day of her life since she was an infant. Because I don't want her walking around in the futility of broken thinking, darkened in her understanding. You know what it does often? It separates them from the love of God. You know why? Because if mom doesn't love me, if dad doesn't love me, if this garbage is in my head, how can there be a father who loves me? And some of your friends, your family, your neighbors, the people that you love, the reason why they're not in church is because they don't believe themselves to be worthy enough to sit here. They've never been on your Facebook account. That was a joke. No one got it. You guys were like super serious. Like, what does he know that I don't know? What does he put on, what have I put on my Facebook account? But they're, 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 wandering, they're wandering around because what? Because they've been separated from God because someone a long time, a long time ago put this useless thinking inside of them because the person had darkened understanding and it separated from the life of God. And some of us just need to go and say, no, 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 God wants you here. He desires you to be here. But they right, right now, they're just ignorant of that. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid. Stupid means impossible to understand. Ignorant means I just don't know it yet. Just like when you were trying to discover your ABCs, you weren't working on multiplication tables. You figured that out because you're not stupid. But, but you just were ignorant of your multiplication tables at one time. In the same way, people just don't know about God. Why? Because no one's told them. And, and it's not, it's gonna be, it could be me, but more likely it's gonna be you. You can show them. You can talk to them about that. You can present the more beautiful picture of following Jesus. But it's just an ignorance. It's just a thing inside of them. That's not a condemnation. It's just an ignorance inside of them. Look, it's, a, it's an ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That phrase right here that, that uh, we're gonna look at, this is the number one chief enemy of your spiritual life. Some people go, it's pride. It's not pride. It's the hardening of your heart. Do you know what the hardening of heart, when it happens and what it looks like? It looks like when the Father says something to you or the Holy Spirit says something to you and says, hey, here's your next step. And you say, no, I wanna hold on to this in my life. I'm afraid of taking that step. 
you know what? If the Lord calls you to do something, he will empower you to do it. If the Lord calls you to do something, there's nothing to fear. You know what there is to fear is not becoming the person that God wants you to be. That's the deeper fear. That's what we should be afraid of. Because watch it, super important. So, so for many of us, the hardening of the heart comes when God says, I want you to do this. And I say, no, sir. I'm too scared. I'm not gonna do that. I don't wanna do it. I like this life better than the one you're painting for me. But, but here's the problem. It's not just that you've said no, it's that you've hardened your heart towards God. And the more that you walk hardening your heart towards God and saying, no, no, that's not the direction. Nope, that's not the direction. The more you walk like this away from God, one day it's hard to hear his voice. You might go, God, I need you now because I found myself over here and this place is painful and hurtful and I don't wanna be here anymore. Where are you? And he's in the background. He's like, I've been screaming for a long time. It's just that somewhere along the way, instead of a soft heart, a tender heart, it became a hard heart and it just bounces off my voice. Every time God speaks to you, take a step of trust and faith with him. Whatever it is in your life, relationships, business, friendships, marriage, whatever it is, take the step. Don't harden your heart towards the Lord because when you do, it's gonna be harder for you to get out. And here's the reason why, verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. Look at this, wow. So having lost all sensitivity, what does that mean? Well, the more I harden myself, the less sensitive I am to his spirit, the less I can hear his voice. The more I harden myself, the more it's easier for me to do things that God doesn't desire. And then he just lists a giant category, he calls it sensuality. And this sensuality deals with uh, like just almost every aberration or every kind of sin that deals with our sexuality. So we become like hypersexual because I can't hear the voice of God anymore because I've lost all sensitivity to his presence and his plan for my life. And therefore I just indulge in every kind of impurity why do I do that? Because those are the only things right now that actually may make me feel alive. I can feel something right now. I can feel attached or loved. But you have been attached and loved by God every second of your life. You have Zoe. You have spiritual life on the inside of you. To trade it for this superficial physical reaction is to miss out on some of the greatest things in your life. This word right here, this word impurity, it means to take something which was whole and good and poison it. So they indulge in physical acts of all kinds and it poisons them. And then for some reason, he adds on the greed part of it, which is just another part of it. He says, and then they become just super greedy. Now the passage turns. It doesn't leave us in this place of like, wow, what do we do? But verse 20 starts the prognosis, the good news. He says, that, however, is not how you learned because you've been taught, right? You've been learned. You, you have learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in accordance with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. So a couple things. Number one, what we're doing right now is not a add-on to your spiritual life or your life. It should be central to your spiritual life. Why? Because all of us need to be taught. I've been taught over and over again, right? By God and by many teachers. Not the way of life that you learn. This living like the Gentiles, living in sensuality, having a hard heart, lost, losing all sensitivity, that's not who God called you to be. You are more than that. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him accordance with the truth, do you know the way that you fight hardness of heart? You tell yourself the truth. 
And you know the way that you get rid of darkened reasoning and useless thoughts? You push back on them with the truth. So when you fall down and you do something stupid, guys, even if you made the choice intentionally to do it, I'm gonna sin, I'm gonna do this thing. I know, I just wanna do it. I'm gonna choose my own path. And then you come back and you confess your sins on the other side of it. You might think, well, it wasn't an accident. I intentionally did something terrible. And you think, well, God can't forgive that. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. In fact, if we just took out all of the intentional things and everything was just an accident, we wouldn't have a whole lot of stuff. We make choices to do what we do in our life. And on the other side of this, on the other side of this, we have to punch back with truth. You're not worthless. You're not broken forever. You're not sinning beyond God's grace. You tell your truth of the gospel. No, no, I have Zoe on the inside of me. I still have Jesus for me. I have the father who sent Jesus in the world to die for my sins. That means his sacrifice is bigger than my sin. And you push back on these things. You don't let these things run rampant in your mind. There is more for you than that. Look, look, look. Verse 20 says, you, however, this is not the way that you've learned. You find the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by your deceitful desires. Guys, let me ask you a question. It's easier for those of us who did not grow up in the church, like me and some, many of you. We have a before life and an afterlife. And so this passage makes a lot of sense. But if you became a Christian as five years old, you're like, I didn't have a before life, right? Well, I'd be like, what kind of major sins were you committing? Eating the cookies that you weren't supposed to? Like, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Put off your old self. I know old Mike. And I know new Mike. And I know this guy's dying more and more all the time. And this one's coming alive all the time. But that's the choice that Paul's giving you. You can give in to the old way of life because, but we've done that. I did everything I could to be happy. And I realized at the end, it made me sad and suicidal. This old self is garbage, which is being corrupted by its own deceitful desires darkened understandings. But that's not, what we, that's not what we do. That's not who we are. Look at what he says in verse 23. But you are to be made new in the attitude of your minds. You're made different. You claim the promises of God in the scripture. You tell yourself the truth about who God says you are. And look what this, you put off your old self. You know what that means? That means that you have to be intentional sometimes by looking at God, looking at your life and going, am I living like a Gentile right now? Am I living like someone who doesn't have Zoe on the inside of me right now. And sometimes you just have to take that old thing and chuck it away. No, 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 I picked it up. But just like a coat, the new coat and the old coat, you can come back and put the old coat back on anytime you want. And you can live in this old raggedy coat or you can take it off and chuck it to the ground in the garbage. You pick up that new coat, you can live in that coat. You can live in that new righteousness. And that's the, that's the choice that's before us. You put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And here's how the whole thing ends. Verse four and five. And I wanna give you a challenge. Verse four. In him, Jesus was Zoe, life. And that spiritual life was the light of all mankind. That is what every single person in the world needs, is the spiritual life that Jesus offers. That's why God sent Jesus into the world for you, for me. The light shines in the darkness and no one, nothing has overcome it. So in three weeks from now, December 24th, when we get ready to do all, I think we have eight services for Christmas Eve. Get your tickets, please get your tickets. I don't want you standing outside, all right? But here's the thing. I don't, I don't want you to, I mean, you can bring whoever you wanna bring, right? But I don't want you to bring your aunt that goes to the United Methodist Church around the corner. Let her go to our church. Let her go to our church. 
Bring someone who's far from God. You go, I got somebody in mind right now, but they don't like church at all. They don't like pastors, church, or religion. Neither did I. But you know what? Here's the thing you just need to realize. It's not gonna be on me and it's not gonna be on you to change their hearts. It's gonna be on the Father to change their hearts. He's the one that can take someone who's far from God. You know why? Because this is what Jesus said when he looked at this prostitute and he looked at this religious guy. He said, this prostitute's closer to the kingdom of God than he is. Why? Because this guy, he doesn't have any need for, for, for Jesus. He doesn't have any need for God. He's like self-satisfied. He's self-righteous. This prostitute, this person who's far from God, she knows she's a sinner. Let's take some people that are in your life that you love and bring them Christmas Eve. I'm gonna give a presentation of the gospel. I'm gonna talk about the more beautiful story. I'm gonna talk about the gift of eternal life for them. 20 consecutive years. My wife and I started this church 20 years ago. For 20 consecutive years, we've had people on Christmas and Easter accept Christ. So your family, your friends, your neighbors, the person that you're thinking of right now, ask the Holy Spirit, God, who is the person that you want me to bring? Then just be bold. Just say, I want you to come to services. They got Christmas trees everywhere. It's gonna be beautiful. And then let's come, let's pray and bring them to the services, okay? This is not about more people, guys. Let me trust me. On, 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 uh, on Christmas, we don't need more people, okay? I mean, do we need more people in here now? No. What we need, <laughs> what we need is for these folks to take their first step toward Christ. Partner with me. And let's make that happen together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you right now with thankfulness in our heart that we get to hear from your word. Thank you, God, that you've called us to live a life that's different because of the Zoe that's on the inside of us, the spiritual life that's on the inside of us. Father, forgive us when we go and live like the Gentiles, like the old ways in which we used to live, that we walk around in that old broken down coat. Let us put off this old life and live in this new life that you called us to. To that end, God, help us to be bold when you speak to us. Help us to trust your voice and to listen to it. We don't want to harden our hearts, God. And Father, forgive us when we have, because it becomes very hard for us to see the truth of the gospel and to hear your voice in our life when we continually turn away from you. But Father, even this morning, forgive our sin. Thank you so much that over and over again, your mercies are new every morning. You're slow to anger and great in mercy. Thank you for that, God. You have done everything that you can for us. And we're so thankful. Father, let us see lives changed this season. Let us see people transformed. Let us see people find the hope of the gospel for the very first time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.